Good morning. morning. Let's go ahead and, and begin with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study, and we ask that you will join us today. Our hearts long to have unity and oneness with you and with each other. We pray that you will uh, send your spirit to join us together in fellowship of love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 10 in our quarterly evangelism and witnessing, and the title this week is A A Love Response. And somebody read for us the memory text, which is John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. That's correct, John 14, 15. It says, uh, when, when you hear this memory text, what comes to mind? What thoughts, feelings, attitudes does this text stimulate in you? How do you hear it? Is it a nice suggestion? A dictator's order. I hear a condition. A condition. Condition. A manipulation. Like, uh, if you'd love me, you'd take out the garbage. (laughs) Or is it a doctor's prescription? It's a natural thing. Or a description of just the way things work. Love to God will produce produce obedience. But do you notice how this one statement can be heard lots of different ways? Mm -hmm. Why would we keep his commands if we love him? And how is it different than Christ saying this than a spouse saying, if you love me, you obey me and do what I say? Or is it the same? Do you speak to your spouse that way? If you love me, you obey me. Uh, I see some spouses going, no, no, that's not going to work. Yes, Wendell. But you would say to your spouse, if you love me, you will walk with me. Or you enjoy walking with someone that you love. Mm-hmm. And is that, is that how you read this? If you love me, you'll walk with me, rather than if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. See, often we look at the keeping the commandments as some obedience thing that we do, whatever. Whereas... What is keeping the commandments? Keeping the commandments is I also keep something there dear to my heart. I, I like where you're going with this, and, and you, hopefully you see how I'm trying to tease out different kind of connotations that we can co- sometimes connect to these verses. And uh, um, how about this? If your spouse was dying of a terminal condition, and you actually had a treatment that would save them, but perhaps your spouse doesn't understand the seriousness of what's wrong with them, Maybe they don't understand anything about the need for the treatment. Um, might you say in that situation, hey, if you love me, you'll follow my directions. Hey, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In that situation, might you say that? If they don't understand what's going on. Might you say that, for instance, to a child who needed to be treated? Yeah, well, sometimes are we like children? Hmm. Well, what would be the difference between saying in the setting of a doctor to a patient, a parent to a child, if you love me, you'll take these medicines. And saying, if you love me, you'll wash my car. What's the difference? Because I have lots of patients who come in, their spouses do this to them. If you love me, you'll wash my car. If you love me, you'll give me money. If you love me, you'll do what I say. Oh, thank you very much. Do you notice the difference when, if you love me, you'll take these medicines, is really motivated to help the person. It's other-centered. It's interested in the welfare of the person you're saying, you're, you're, you're talking to. Whereas, if you love me, you'll give to me, you'll do for me. That's a selfish motive. And so it really goes to the motive, doesn't it? Yes. Often what we think of being the commandments is, in, at least in my subculture when I was growing up, if you love me, you'll keep the Ten Commandments. So, so perfect. So the question then is, what are his commands? You know, when he says that, what is he referring to? If you love me, you'll keep my commands or my commandments. Are they referring to the ten? The only the ten? More than the ten? What does it mean to refer to the ten? I think the ten is just a subset of everything that he's given to us. And he had been walking with these people now. We're in, in John 14 at the Last Supper. He'd been walking with these 12 men for three and a half years. Yes. He's not just talking about, if you love me, 
you will keep something I gave to the Israel before my incarnate state. Yeah, and so, and so the lesson, actually, right here in the first paragraph, I think it points out what you're saying. It says, although our memory text is often considered to refer to the Ten Commandments, there are other commandments as well, not the least being, go ye therefore make disciples of all nations. And so I think the lesson is saying what you're saying, hey, wait a minute, does this go beyond the Ten Commandments? Does he have other commands? But again, what are the motives for those commands? How do you hear the motive? Before we get into the specific command, when you hear Christ saying, if you love me, keep my commands, do you hear it from a, a, a universal dictator saying, do what I say or else? Or do you hear it from a person who loves you and want what's best for you? You see, that makes a big difference, doesn't it? Yes. Do, and, and I think Wendell said, as growing up, he often heard this as, as the commandments. Did that generally growing up connote it's best for me or I better or else? You know, that's how I heard it growing up anyway as a kid. Even though the truth is, it's, it's for our best good. Um, aren't the basis of all Christ's commands love for, for us? Aren't that the basis? Um, does it make a difference if we respond with a to Christ's commands or if we don't respond, if we follow them or if we don't follow them? Does it make a difference? In the way he said, if you love me, keep my commands, does it make a difference if we do or if we don't? Does it make a difference in God's attitude toward us? No. Does it make a difference in us? Yes. What difference does it make in us? Our attitude toward God. How about the Pharisees in Christ's day? Were they wanting Christ down off the cross in order to keep the commandment? Were they wanting Christ down off the cross so they could go home and keep the commandment? Yes. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Were they doing it out of love, though? They were doing it out of sense of obligation and duty. So this idea of what difference does it make with us, altruism, volunteerism, listen to what the science says. It says, dozens of studies over several decades have examined the relationship between volunteer work, which is altruism, giving of yourself, practicing the law of love, and health-related outcomes. Most studies have shown positive volunteering health, uh, and health associations. Among youth, evidence suggests that volunteer work is associated with a plethora of positive developmental outcomes, such as academic achievement, civic responsibility, and life skills that include leadership and interpersonal confidence. Four studies between 1996 and 2003 evaluated the effect of volunteerism and longevity in the elderly. In other words, how long do you live? Controlling for confounding variables such as health when entering the study, all four studies reported that volunteers tended to live statistically longer than those who did not volunteer. Not only did they live longer, they lived better. Several studies have examined the relationship between volunteering and physical functioning. Um, a study by Moen et al. Um, of 427 women who resided in upstate New York and were both wives and mothers in 1956. Over the next 30 years, uh, compared to non-volunteers, women who did any volunteering had better physical functioning in 1986. After adjusting for baseline health status, level of education, and a number of life roles, they still had a better health than those who didn't volunteer. A similar study done in uh, 2002 found that uh, compared to non-volunteers or those who volunteered less than 100 hours in in the year, those who were volunteering 100 hours or more in 1998 uh, uh, were approximately 30% less likely to experience physical functioning limitations, even after adjusting for demographics, socioeconomic status, baseline functioning, uh, health, health status, paid employment, exercise, smoking, and social concerns. After all these things were adjusted for, volunteering still resulted in better health. And then a study in 2003 examined the data collected between 1986 and 1994 among 1,500 U.S. adults, finding that volunteering predicted significantly less functional disability three to five years later after adjusting for demographic, socioeconomic status, marital status, and other things. So volunteering, helping others, being altruistic results in better health. Is that a surprise to anybody? Do you see how that puts you in harmony with God's design? I have many patients who tell me that they want to be happy. And as I've really looked at this and evaluated this, it seems to me that happiness is a consequence of healthiness. 
when you're healthy in all aspects of your life, when you're physically healthy, mentally healthy, spiritually healthy, relationally healthy, when you're healthy across the board, you're happy. But when you're unhealthy in any aspect, physically unhealthy, physical illness and disease undermines happiness. Relational unhealthiness and conflict undermines happiness. Mental unhealthiness and conflict. Spiritual unhealthiness and conflict. You see, happiness isn't something we get directly. It's a consequence of living in harmony with the way God built things and experienced healthiness. Does that kind of make sense? So what does this have to do with obeying God's commands? Because that was the opening thing. If you love me, you obey my commands. Is there a connection between obeying God's commands and healthiness? Can anybody connect those dots for me? What's the connection? If you do it from love versus doing it from a sense of duty, I have to do it or I'm going to get sapped. Okay, so, so if you do it from love, let's assume you're doing it from love, what's the connection between obeying God's commands from love and healthiness? It's how we're made. So one thought is if you do it from love, God recognizes you love him and he uses his power from heaven to bless you with health. If you do it out of duty, God is angry, turns his face from you, and sends his angels to cause you sickness. Is this what's happening? Well, if you're loving each other, mm-hmm. then you're healthier. You're following God's plan. Yes, if, you're, if that's true. The question is, why? Why does it work that way? And he said, because that's the way we're made. Go ahead. Well, it's, a good example is like um, being hydrated. If you drink enough water, you feel better, you're not so tired, you have more energy, you think better... And so if you just obey or agree with that law and follow it, you're going to be in better health. Okay, so God's commands are based on his design protocols for life, how he built life to operate. So just as the, uh, you know, God's commands are the manufacturer's maintenance instructions. So you get maintenance instructions for your automobile, and if you follow them, it runs better. And if you follow God's commands for life, then we run better. He built us, yeah? Does that make sense? Yeah, Wendell. There's a statement, God's commands are enablings. Ah, all his um, biddings are enablings. Right. Yes. And so, you know, that's how we're made. And if we are in, in living in union with what he has designed us to be, then we are going to be the happiest and the healthiest and successful in our own selves, maybe not in this world. And and I agree with what you're saying. And let's connect what you said with what Margaret said earlier when she said if we do it out of love, let's kind of say, well, what happens if we do the the right behavior, but we do it out of duty, we do it out of obligation, or we do it out of fear of punishment? Does it make a difference? That soon produces a rebellion. Well, if if we do it out of fear of punishment, it it can certainly produce rebellion. Does it make a difference in our health? Chemically, it makes a difference. And I think I may be a little outside the box thinking of this, but I actually think that reading God's Word and relation and having a relationship with Him actually fixes you. I think He is in your mind actually working to make changes that undo the things you did or made choices that you did that... No, you're absolutely right. You're, you're not outside the box. That's, that's absolutely right. in there working in you, and I think that's why the devil tries so hard to keep us from reading the Bible, keeps us having praying and having a relationship with God, because he knows that's like electricity. It's like a bulb versus being stuck to electricity. We are dead without him, and with him, the electricity starts flowing through, and I think he actually starts trying to repair physical damage that we've done in our minds and in our habits and so on. It says in Hebrews that the Holy Spirit brings life to our bodies. Brings life to our bodies. Now, I have a patient who's 38. He's struggling with, uh, with uh, esteem issues and depression her entire life and has also struggled with weight issues. And recently, in our work together, she's made some seriously marked improvements in her life. Depression's uh, gotten better. And um, the appointment before last, we, we, we reviewed that despite her belief Now, she has this belief about herself that she's a failure, that she can't succeed, that everything she does isn't good enough, that she's um, not a a good person. This is how she believes about herself. That despite that, she's got a master's degree. 
She works for a Fortune 500 company as, as an executive in their company. Uh, she gets outstanding reviews annually from her, her supervisors. Um, she's been in a stable relationship for seven years. Okay, and I, and I contrasted the objective achievements in her life with this idea that she fails at everything she does. And um, she came back to me this last session and said that she, even though it was hard, she began forcing herself to be truthful. And she started to tell herself that, you know what? She is a responsible person. She's not irresponsible. She's responsible. She fulfills her duties. She works hard. She's honest. She's loyal. And she started telling herself these truths. Now, here's what gets interesting. Prior to the session in which we made this change in her thinking, she had been in Weight Watchers for five weeks prior to that session. And over those five weeks of Weight Watchers, and she was very, very religious about uh, following to the, to the point, the points she's allowed to have, she lost five and a half pounds over five weeks. The four weeks following this change in thinking, following the same diet, same number of points, she lost 11 pounds in the next four weeks, which is double the weight loss in less time, one week less, double the weight loss. Now, she didn't make any more diet changes. In fact, if you know anything about Weight Watchers, they actually give you some extra points you're allowed to have if you want to splurge a little bit during the week. And during the four weeks where she lost the 11 pounds, she actually was feeling good enough that she ate some extra. She, she had actually more calories during the four weeks than she did during the five weeks, but lost twice as much weight. Why? Why might that be? Well, first, why this was helpful for her to tell herself she's honest, she's responsible, she's loyal, she's these things. Why did this work for her? Because, number one, it was true. See, it wouldn't have been beneficial for her to tell herself things that were not true because in her mind she would know they're not true. But because these actually were true, she had been loyal. She does have a, she did have a, a, a history of, of success and all these things. And so the truth, uh, she could believe these things because they were true. And then what happened in her negative thinking, when you think negatively, you fire in your brain stress circuits. The amygdala, the amygdala activates in your immune system. Your immune system begins releasing inflammatory factors. And the inflammatory factors damage insulin receptors in your body. And the insulin receptors don't respond to insulin as well, which causes your body to kick out more insulin. And what insulin does in your body is insulin tells your body to store energy. How does your body store energy? Fat. So under this negative thinking cycle, anxiety, stress, negative thinking, she's kicking out a lot of stress hormones, which cause the, uh, the elevation of insulin, which causes the body to store fat. When she changed her thinking to positive thinking, she lowered the stress cascade, lowered the inflammatory factors, the insulin receptors become more receptive again, the insulin levels drop, and she begins burning fat rather than storing fat. So based on a change in thinking... It's healing and restorative, the way God built us. So anything, I'm going to suggest to you, anything that moves us towards fear is destructive. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. afraid. Anything that moves us towards love, perfect love casts out all fear, is healing and restorative. Lies engender fear. Truth is healing. You know the truth, the truth will set you free. So we can actually now, with the brain science we have, we can actually connect together why when you move towards positive thinking, there's actually physiological changes that happen and why we're healthier. Isn't that kind of cool? Yeah. George. It's interesting they say for folks who lose weight, especially significant weight, 98% of them will gain it back. And you, it ties into what you're saying there because now the fear, oh, I want to get worse problems, this and that, i got to do more serious, but that fear cycle, if it's not broken, you know, 90% that do well and have significant weight loss, fail, and, and wonder if a lot of it's back to the roots you just shared. Well, I think it's back to the roots, but a lot of times people lose weight because they go on a diet. And what happens with diets? What do they always do? They not only fail, they come to an end. You see, diets end. And when diets end, you go back to the old lifestyle, and the old lifestyle puts on weight. So the people who succeed ultimately are those who don't never go on diets. They just change their lifestyle. You change your lifestyle. This way I live now. And then if you live in harmony with God's methods, then you don't fail. But what happens is they start breaking God's methods, whether they're physical diet methods and exercise methods or mental health methods. Either way, when, you, when we're out of harmony with God's methods, it's unhealthy. We're in harmony with God's methods, it's healing. But, but most of the diet things and the diet plans and programs that people get into, they're always structured for a period of time and then they end. Yes? One brief follow-up. There's a tendency people lose weight for usually not healthy reasons. It's because they 
they're insecure and they're trying to do it so they look good, or they're doing it because their spouse is complaining, or their parents are complaining, or whatever, or the fear of what I might get. They're not because they want to be a healthier servant neighbor to their friends and family. It's a lot of times it's, it's for me instead of for others, and when it becomes for others, then that lifestyle change and habits much more natural. Even exercise. If you exercise, it's very important that you choose an exercise you enjoy. Because if you choose an exercise that you dread and hate, the whole time you're doing it, you're going, I hate this. This is miserable. I can't stand it. Oh, 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 oh. Okay, what are you doing? You're firing the negative stress circuits and you're kicking up all the inflammatory factors and you're actually working against the benefit the exercise is trying to give you. So it's important when you exercise to choose an exercise. And the best exercise that I tell my patients are the ones where exercise is a byproduct. It's not actually about exercise. So you're playing basketball, you're playing tennis, you're playing racquetball, you're doing some activity. That's the focus. And oh, by the way, I've got to exercise to do it. Okay, so exercise is a byproduct of something. You're out chopping wood or whatever it is you're doing, and your focus is the activity, and you have to exercise. So that's the best exercise. But when you have to just sit there, and some people will do exercises, and they make themselves do it, and they're hating it the whole time, they won't get the same benefits that if it's an exercise you enjoy. The mind is very powerful. Yeah, I have something about singing. This is a little bit different. As a singer, we've been told that by our uh, director, who has a you know doctorate in music, that the immune system is boosted twice when you practice singing and four times when you actually perform it. Very few singers get sick very often. It's it's really amazing, and you can come to rehearsal just like dead at the end of the day after a long day and feel really rejuvenated when you leave. It requires so much thought in various areas of your brain because you're thinking of the measure of the music and the words and the, the phrasing and the actual notes, and you've got so many things you're thinking about. It, it's really using your, all areas of your brain, and it, seems to, it, it enhances your actual immune system. You know, I haven't seen any studies on that, but I, I wouldn't be surprised. Does it matter whether you can carry a tune or not? I'm just wondering. Some people may not be able to benefit from that. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Um, Sunday's lesson, it talks in the third paragraph. It says, um, our love for God must be rooted in his love for us. God existed before we did, and he has loved us supremely from creation, from the creation of humankind. Love can come only as a result of and in response to love. I think this is well said. I mean, we can't generate it. We can't work for it. We can't go out there and earn it. Um, love comes from God. He's the source of love. We can receive it, and we can share it, but we can't produce it. So the question is, if you want more love, what do you have to do? I heard it's give it away. The more you give, the more you receive. This is how God's kingdom works. Because The more you love others, the more love you receive from God and from others. That's how it works. Um, how do you experience God's love or how have you experienced God's love in your life? Because I know patients struggle to experience God's love. People do. How do you experience it? Well, I always say that God answers some of the biggest problems of your life, guides you, gives you ideas, brings people to you that give you ideas, but he also gives you little flowers in life, things that you would not have to have to live but he does it anyway. You're praying about something, a little disturbing thing, and you say, it's not a biggie, but, you know, I'm just concerned about this. And suddenly, in my experience, think people or something, an, a, an unusual occurrence has arisen that makes you, it's so out of the ordinary, you it take, gets your attention, that just answers the concern you're having. And I think he really does want to have a relationship. It's the difference between knowing about you and what you think and actually knowing you. So what you're saying is that you experience God's love by his interaction and interventions in your life, big or small, his care and concern for you. You personally experience. How about, what do you say to the person who said, I've never experienced that? I experienced God's love through my wife and my family. Well said. Absolutely. Just amazes me every day. Yes, but, but you know something? To experience love through our wife and family would require them to actually have a loving connection with Christ. Some people have family members they don't experience love through. They experience abuse through. So, you know, you're blessed. I'm blessed. I have a wife who I experience Christ's love through as well. But some people don't have that, do they? Yeah. That's probably one reason why this quiet time with God, hopefully on a daily basis, is not an obligation. But when you spend time with the creator of the universe, but he's taking time and he is jazzed and excited about you, that changes you. And then when you 
hopefully you're wise and spend time in a weekend fellowship, you're spending some time with the same type people, and it builds you up instead of tearing each other down. You're not playing the comparison game. You're there in, enjoying what they can do at shortstop and versus what the person does in center field. You see how, how you need each other and how you enjoy each other. So, so, so the question, do you guys know God loves you and experience God loves you, or do you just know he loves you? Is there a difference? I know it. Struggling to experience it. I think I think the real challenge is to experience that love. And one way is is having a perspective, an awareness. Linda over here described an awareness. Her mind open, starts the day looking for God's interventions in her life. She sees a beautiful flower, and she sees God putting something there for her to enjoy the fragrance, the blessing. You know, so it's it's a mental perspective and awareness as well that we have to have. I think God's blessings, as the scriptures say, in Christ said, the, the sunshine comes and the rain comes on the, on the righteous and the wicked. God's blessings are around us all the time. Are we aware? Do we appreciate? Do we take time to reflect on the meaning of those types of things? And are you ever thankful? Do you see God's love in the hard times? When I was a kid, my mother got me vaccines. I know at that time I didn't appreciate it. But I do now. I was glad I got those vaccines. Do we sometimes, does God intervene in our lives in some ways that are uncomfortable? And we, we actually feel like maybe he's not loving us at that moment when he is. Yes. I was just going to say we're so often distracted that we don't take time to be silent. And God says to be silent and know me. And you just have to stop and give him space because uh, the devil tries to fill our lives with every distraction under the sun. What, what barriers have you all found to experiencing God's love? Somebody said already one, we're so busy. We're so, that was, that, yeah, you, so busy that we don't have time. We don't take time. Besides being busyness of life, are there any other barriers that you find to experience God's love? Yes. I come from an abusive past. And um, I know that I have found God's love by giving to others and helping others. And that's been very beneficial for me. Well said. Well said. Absolutely. Absolutely. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. There is a difference between looking at a meal laying on the table and actually eating it. Do you, do you think that it would be easier to experience God's love if Jesus were on earth in person like he was 2,000 years ago? Way in the back, in the corner. Or is it actually easier now? If Jesus were here today, in person, how many of you do you think would actually get an opportunity to get to know him personally? How many people, how many people 2,000 years ago actually got to spend personal time with Jesus? Very few, really. Yeah, okay. Uh, back on the barriers question that you had. Yes. A couple of responses from viewers was... Uh, uh, television, and another one was misunderstanding what God is truly like is a barrier. I think those are well said. I think television certainly is a barrier, um, unless you're watching us right now. <laughs> okay. But no, I, uh, yes, theatrical programming particularly. Um, and then misunderstanding God's character for sure. And that is ultimately where it started in heaven. It was a misunderstanding of God's character and what, what happened in Eden and, and what persists today and what Corinthians tells us we war over everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Sure. Wendell. You earlier talked about that um, God loves us regardless of whether we love him or not and that his love is the same, but he doesn't treat us the same. The various Why? Why? Well, the various parables and other issues is illustrated. The 90 and 9 are in the fold, and he is going and doing things differently for the lost than he is doing for those who are in his fold. Because? We need it. Thank you. Yes, he's acting different, not because he's different, because we're in trouble, because our situation needs him to act different for us. Yeah, that's a huge difference. A lot of people say we act different because well, we're in trouble now. He's got to punish us or... Uh, he gets mad at us. and The, the no. uh, prodigal son story, the, the father had two sons, and he loved both of them. Both of them were lost. Yes. Both of them were treated with love by the father, but they were treated differently. 
Um, did y'all hear that? They were treated differently. He loved them both. Yes, exactly right. Yes. John said that he was the disciple that Jesus loved. He loved all of them, but John responded in a different way. So he experienced that love more so than perhaps the others because of his response. He was more receptive to be transformed and brought in by that love. I gotcha. Monday's lesson, first paragraph, it says, Over the centuries, guilt has been uh, used as, uh, to motivate people to action. Evangelism leaders have often reminded us that God has given us a responsibility and that we must use our God-given talents and gifts. We are told that God or the church is depending on us. If God has done so much for, uh, to save us, how can we remain evangelistically inactive? All these attempts to call us to action delivered, no doubt, with the best in- intentions, subtly appeals to our sense of guilt and indebtedness to God. Motivation always seems to become counterproductive when we remove the emphasis from what God has done and placed it onto what we must do. I think that's well said. What do you think? Now, I know none of us have ever had that experience. Now, have you had that experience, that that church-induced guilt feeling? Someone met me one time at church when I was first coming with my little child back to, a lot of times people start going to Sabbath school and all when their children are born and then that kind of brings them back into the Sabbath school mode. And when I was coming back, someone said, are you going to help us with nursery Sabbath school? We really need help. And uh, uh, just before that question, someone else had said, you know, I believe if you come to church and you don't contribute, that's selfish worship. And I had never thought of worship as being a selfish thing. For I'm only there to take what you have to give. I'm not there to contribute anything. I'm just there to take. And then someone asked... And, th- and that appealed to love, right? Not guilt. <laughs> uh, yes. One key thing to remember, you know, remember we are the church, and we almost hear in our own heads, we tend to sometimes be down on ourselves and negative, and then we tend to be hard on other people. So just remind us, and we're that remnant, hopefully, that are trying to help those other folks that do get in this mode of being judgmental, being critical. And a lot of times we're very judgmental and critical on ourselves. If we didn't have a Sabbath rest, if we don't have that time with God, we tend to be our worst enemy. And when we, we tend to slip in the mode of other churches, that we're sort of hard on them and saying, yeah, I don't think they're really capable of doing this or that. We better not put them there. And we're, Instead of finding ways to nurture them, who can go alongside them so they can grow in that area? And everyone's excited seeing who the person used to be and who they are now and excited that they did something to encourage that person. Yeah, I love your heart there, George, wanting to help and, and build people and bring them along. That's, that's well said. Um, in the lesson, it, it asks us, it says, read Romans three nineteen and 20. What did the Apostle Paul mean when he said the whole world is guilty before God? And this is out of the New King James in Romans three nineteen and 20. It says, now... Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and that the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So that all the world may be guilty before his sight, before God. All the world may be guilty before God. What do you hear about this idea? What do you think it means that all the world may be guilty before God? I think it means can they well, that they see the condition they're in. In order, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And if you don't know you're sick, you won't go to the doctor. Something has to tell you something's wrong. And I, that feeling of the acknowledgement and understanding that you are sick may be the very thing that leads you to your doctor. Any other thoughts? Because the the uh, the lesson is emphasizing guilt. I, I personally agree with you, uh, Linda. Yes. The New Revised Standard Version says uh, that the whole and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Well, here's my paraphrase for those two verses. See what you think. It says, now we know that the Ten Commandments are like a medical diagnostic instrument identifying infection and diagnosing disease. If diagnose, It diagnoses accurately everyone who is infected with distrust of God filled with selfishness and is dying of sin, so that everyone who claims to be sin-free or free of selfishness will be silenced and the entire world will recognize its need of God's healing solution. Therefore, no one will be recognized as having a healthy relationship with God and being like Christ in character by adhering to a set of rules. Rather, it is through the Ten Commandments that we become aware of our sickly state of mind. Does that make it... Yeah, do you think that works better? Yeah. 
And that's, of course, the purpose, to bring us, as you say, awareness of our sick condition. So does the guilty, uh, this idea of guilty, give us the right sense of the meaning? If you, if you, if you focus in on that, so that all the world is guilty before God. It seems like to emphasize, you know, I had to go to the King James or the New King James. All the other versions don't use guilty there. Well, he said, uh, bring up, make us accountable before God. Make us aware of our, our sinfulness before God. Okay, they don't use the word guilty. Guilty seems to connote something different. And if you think, think about that, read the next, we'll look at the next paragraph. It says, um, the way Paul uses the word guilty in this passage communicates a sense of accountability. He has already stated in Romans 3.10 that there is none that are righteous, no, not one. And in verse 19, he confirms that the law makes all the world guilty before God. Does the law communicate a sense of account? Oh, way in the back, yes. Uh, Gene commented that... Uh, Where's Gene from? It doesn't say. Okay. He was commenting on the guilty before God is uh, that we're out of harmony with God's character. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. That uh, That's what we're talking about here. Um, the, uh, the lesson, um, it's, it suggests that it communicates an accountability. Do you think the law communicates accountability, or does it communicate a sense of reality, what our situation actually is? Like we are out of harmony with God. That's what's communicated. You're out of harmony with God. You're not in harmony with the way God designed life. Your life, your character is self-centered, not loving. The next two paragraphs, listen to these. It says, the law functions, the, the law's function has often been likened to a mirror that reveals our sinful condition, but which cannot provide the cleansing soap and water. Looking, looking into God's law, we become aware of our sinfulness and are driven to the Savior to receive his free pardon and cleansing. I think this is well said right here, very well said. Next, next paragraph. It says, after we come to Christ, we are no longer motivated by guilt because the guilt has been washed away, covered by the righteousness of Jesus. We stand in him perfect and guiltless and forgiven. Yes, we are sinners, but we have been forgiven. Our guilt has been atoned for. Now, based on the salvation that is ours through Christ, we are motivated to witness to others about that which Christ has done for us. Now, I thought it got a little convoluted right there. It got a little confusing right there. I thought the first paragraph was well said, that the law is a mirror. It looks in, shows us the dirt, but a mirror doesn't remove the dirt. We go to Christ, Christ cleanses us. I think that's exactly what's happening here. But you notice this, this next paragraph, it said, because the guilt has been washed away, covered by the righteousness of Jesus. If I'm at your house or you're working at your house, is there a difference between washing something away and covering it up. You notice how they mix the metaphor here. He washes it away and covers it up. Wait a minute. If I wash dirt away, I don't need to cover it up, do I? It's not there anymore. And if I'm covering it, uh, well, then it's still dirty. I just put a cover over it. Yes. I was just going to say, it's like sweeping the dirt under the rug. Yeah, putting dirt under the rug doesn't get rid of the dirt. It just hides the dirt. But the dirt's still there. You see, the dirt is the sinfulness in our hearts and minds. Washing it away, cleansing it. New heart, right spirit. Rebirth, renewal, heart, uh, mind of Christ. Uh, put the law, write the law on the heart and mind. All the metaphors are about cleansing, renewal, transformation. But this idea of covering over leaves the dirt where it's at. That's not what's happening. There's actual cleansing happening, transformation. Yes. This whole thing about speech is so challenging. I was just looking at the dictionary definition, and number one is to, to cover it, put a cloth over. What, def, definition of what? Of cover. Okay, okay. And the second definition is to deal with by describing or analyzing. So you know, even our words are limited. The average word has four and a half definitions. So there's, no, there's a healthy way to understand cover, and there's a very confusing way, which I think we tend to lean towards of, oh, just cover it up, cover it up. And yet it can be to address, to describe, to deal with. Okay, so, so, so how, we, how does the righteous Christ address or deal with? Because it's the medicine that comes in. You know, it comes in, doesn't just diagnose the problem, and now it cuts out the cancer, it deals with the infection, it covers it and cleanses it. Do you think that's what the lesson was referring to? Maybe not. I'm not sure. I think it could go both ways. And I, think better- I, I, like, I like very much what you're doing with the word. I like very much because it does deal with it. But, but generally when I've heard this, this covered used, it ends up going like this. So when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see the sinfulness in our heart. He sees the robe of Christ's righteousness covering our sinfulness. That's different than what you're describing. Both the author or the committee, most of them might have seen it, but just like we both wear glasses, hopefully they'll be able to see, I go to the eye doctor, this time I need to get my eyes changed. Sometimes you have to get stronger glasses. So hopefully those 
that are only reading the lesson will struggle with those words and make sure they see it accurately and not inaccurately. Yes. Many times in the Bible, the, that terminology to cover our transgressions, whatever is used, and without going into the theology of that, I think that we currently have a vernacular for covered that works well for this situation. When I was going to teach for you, I was on call. And one of my colleagues says, well, don't worry, I will cover you. You know, and he is going to work in my behalf so that something can be accomplished. Christ works in our behalf to renew us, to heal us, and to take care of whatever is wrong. Yeah, I, I think that absolutely can be understood that way. Yes. I'm still a little confused on this. Seems like there's some of both going on all the time. I mean, when we come to Christ, we put away our sinful ways. But he doesn't usually show all our sins to us all at once. But yet I feel like I'm, I'm a saved person anyway. What do you mean he doesn't show our sins to us? What do you mean? Well, you know, as, as, I, as I live my life, from time to time, I, I'm aware of something else that I really am not doing that maybe an attitude is not correct or is not right for someone. Um, so I'm aware of, of, of more things perhaps or another thing I should do. Uh, I have friends also who, who will they'll become a new Christian. They'll come to church. And when they first come to church, they might be smoking. They might be drinking. They might be doing other activities, perhaps. And, and the members don't always just smite them right away, luckily. And pretty soon they, they stop doing some things that might not be Christ-like. One at a time, usually. And they just... And so what are you describing... See, see, I think you're mixing, I think the reason you're confused, you're mixing a couple different issues. One is the heart, and the other is the behavior. Okay, so what are we talking about here when we come to Christ and we get a new heart and right spirit? What, what, what does that mean? A new heart and right spirit, what does it mean? Well, the right spirit, of course, is, is, the, is what saves us, I think, or what, is what, that's what brings us to Christ. Our, but what does it mean to have a new heart? What does it mean? To be reborn, to be recreated in the inner man, to have the law written on the heart and mind. All these metaphors, to be, have the heart circumcised by the spirit, to have the heart of stone removed, the heart of flesh put in. What does all these metaphors mean in reality? What do they mean? That, that changing conversion, what though? Your, your ideas about God and what he wants us to do. Attitude, ideas about God, our mind, what did you say? Our motivation. I think this is where it's really getting down to. The converted heart has a different motive for action. The unconverted heart's motive for action is fear-based, self-protective, self-centered, self-oriented, even if the outward behavior appears selfless. Many people interested in aggrandizing themselves and getting a good name and getting fame may do things that appear to minister to other people because they want to get awards, they want to get medals, they want to get elected to office, they want to get, but their motive of heart is still all about themselves. But the converted person's motive of heart, their heart motive is one of loving God and loving others. I want to do something to bless God, bless others. I want to give of myself to help others. Now, with that changed motive, that motive will then be actualized through the established neural network that you have. Imagine it as a lens, okay? You're, you're sending a light wave through a lens, and one lens is very clean, one lens is very dirty. Same light. The dirty lens is going to have it all kind of mucked up for a while until you clean the lens. Our neural network, if we've come to Christ with a new heart motive, but we've practiced for many, many years very, very destructive and healthy principles, the, the, the old habit patterns are not broken like this. Addictions are not necessarily broken like this. And so what happens is my heart doesn't want to do any of that anymore. But sometimes I have old conditioned responses and habit patterns that cause me in certain situations to reflexively react with a curse word. And then when those things happen, a short temper, an irritable attitude, an ugly word, something happens or a, a bottle of beer or whatever it might be in a discouraging moment, our hearts are sick over it. 
I don't want to be this way anymore. I am so, and this is what Paul's talking about in Romans 7. Oh, what a pathetic man am I. I, I my, my heart has been renewed for Christ, but, but, but I'm so weak, I still find myself doing the things I don't even want to do anymore. But that person, as you say, is not lost. That person is growing, and by grace, this is what Paul says, one day he will also be free of all these things. So I think what happens, though, is that from the, from the history and when many of us were raised, we are raised to look at behavior. And then we look at behavior, and then we judge based on behavior. But man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. And it's truly the heart motive. That's why you can look at Rahab, Rahab the prostitute. We find her in Hebrews in the Hall of Faith. And her greatest act that we have recorded is lying. No, they're not here. They're somewhere else. Yet it took faith for her to lie. Rahab lied in faith. Now that sounds strange, doesn't it, to say that? How can she lie in faith? Because she made a choice. Think of the context, where she's at. Think of her maturity. Think how much she knows about God. Think of her developmental scale. But what did she make a choice to do? Whose side did she put herself on? Who did she trust with her life to make that lie? God. She sided against her entire society, her entire civilization, the army, the soldiers standing at her door, and she said, I'm on God's side. I'm going to protect these people. Now, you don't find God saying, well, lied. But you find God saying, I recognize your heart. Your heart is right. Your heart's for me. We miss this all the time. We would want to stone her. How dare you lie? Nicely said, she was the progenitor of Christ. Rahab was in the line of David. Yes, Lisa. The sentence in the third paragraph in that section says, we stand in him perfect and guiltless and forgiven. And where, where forgiveness comes in, I think, is God's patience with us and knowing that we're in the process of being healed, but he forgives us as we walk along. How about the wicked in the end? How do they stand before God? Are they unforgiven? No. Or, they, or does God forgive them too? See, the, the wicked and the righteous stand before God forgiven. God forgives them both mm-hmm. from his heart. What's the difference? Those that are wicked have rejected God's forgiveness and it has no transforming power in their life. I forgive you. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Christ forgave them. They didn't accept the forgiveness. They stood forgiven before Christ. But they weren't transformed by that forgiveness. They didn't receive the forgiveness into their heart. The, the love that comes in, remember, love awakens love. His forgiveness, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance in Romans. So I want to go back to this thing about guilt, though. And it says in here that it washes away guilt. Washes away guilt. Is that legal guilt? Is that emotional guilt? Is that both? What is it talking about? How many of you are legally guilty for being a sinner? Good, I'm glad I didn't see any hands. Imagine an HIV-infected man, HIV-infected woman get together and have a baby born HIV-infected. What did the baby do wrong? How many of you chose to be born a sinner? How many of you had a choice not to be born a sinner? No, you had no... There is no legal guilt that you have. You've done nothing wrong to be born a sinner. You didn't have a choice. God knows this. How many times is it projected onto us, though? We're legally guilty. We stand condemned. We've got a death sentence hanging over our head. Uh, we see the, the metaphors of a death chamber, and, a, and Christ is going to go in there and take our death penalty because we're condemned to die and all this kind of stuff. It's not so. It's like that HIV baby. HIV baby didn't do anything wrong. It's not legal. It's conditional. That baby has a condition, which is terminal. We're born in a condition, which is terminal. That's the problem. We're born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Now that HIV-infected baby, even though it didn't do anything wrong, will that child grow up and having symptoms of that disease? Yes. Will that be the child's fault, having those symptoms? No. Born in sin, conceived in iniquity, do we grow up having symptoms of that disease? Yes. What are the symptoms of that disease? Sins. Sins are the sin, symptoms of sinfulness. Do you think It depends on whether it's appropriate or inappropriate guilt. And we're not going to go there yet. I just want to pull this this thread on through. 
Because uh, if I leave it here, people are going to get misunderstanding. Okay? So it, it's not by our choice. Can, we, can the HIV-infected baby, on its own, without outside help, cure itself? Can a sinner born in sin, with outside help, cure, cure themselves? Can that HIV-infected baby, without help, avoid symptoms? Can we, without help, avoid sin? Committing sin, without help, by ourselves? No. So, is the, it, so what guilt is rightfully ours? Well, if that HIV-infected baby grew up and there was a, a remedy free offered to that child, that would cure them. And they refuse the remedy and choose to stay in sickness. Now, is, will, will they be guilty for that? This is our situation. We're born in sin, conceived in iniquity. God sent Christ to provide remedy. Free remedy is offered to us through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds. We have the choice to participate in that or reject that. And if we instead reject Christ's remedy and persistently, habitually choose the path of sin and sickness, then we're guilty for that. That guilt is ours. But not for the fact we have this condition, and not for the fact we struggle with this condition until somebody brought us the good news, the, the remedy. But once we are aware of that and we reject it, now it's on us. Does that make sense? Yes. But even though we're guilty for that, that is still not a legal issue. That is a terminal condition. Yes. Thank you. For, thank you. Yes. But the, but the, the emotion of guilt. Right. Yes. We can, we can feel guilty for rejecting the free offer. But it's, you're right, it's still not a legal guilt. You're exact. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, and then in the lesson, it asks us to read James chapter 2, verse 10. It says, Forever keeps the law, the whole law, yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking it all. And then it asks us to read um, the next paragraph. It says, The fact that an offense on one point makes one guilty of defying God who commanded the whole law um, who commanded the whole law, underscores the futility of an attempt to gain favor with God in God's sight through keeping the law. What is the you, emphasis you hear them placing on the problem of breaking on one point? Behavior. And, 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 and it's a behavior thing, and, it, and it's, it's wrong because what happens in the sentence? Defying the God who commanded it. So our problem when we break the law on any point is we're defying God who commanded it. Now, if that's what I hear, what did you hear? Have you heard that God gets offended when we defy him? When we break his law, it offends him? Yes. Two things tying to this initially. It's almost like if we're all in this, we're in a cancer ward right here, and we've all quit smoking now, but we're all here because we have lung cancer. And it's great we quit smoking, and maybe we'll live a little longer and all this other, but the fact we have lung cancer, that's the problem. And we might live a little longer, whatever, but, you know, the fact we have our problems, we're born sinners. And we didn't choose that. We just choose to let God take care of the cancer or not. Yes. Hopefully, by the way, the healing mall has a great window because if we're in the waiting room, hopefully we're encouraging one another saying, hey, it's great you've lost some weight. It's great for this and that. But when we go and we have that one-on-one with, with the doctor, you know, if we go to the waiting room and never see the doctor, that's how a lot of people go to church. They, they, they never actually keep their appointment. They... They, they never spend time with God. So how do we understand this text? Whoever keeps the law on one, uh, who keeps the whole law yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. How do we understand it? Doesn't that have something to do with the way you hook up with the energy that comes through thinking what's right and then following through with, with, with what's right? I, I like that very much, yeah. This is, this is my paraphrase for that James 2.10. See what you think. For whoever loves in one area, but lives selfishly in another, is still out of harmony with God's design. I mean, isn't that what it means right there? It's about whether you're selfish or you're loving. And there are people who love their family, but run mafia operations and murder people. True? Yeah. So, so obeying the law in one place, loving in one place, but being selfish in another, you're still selfish. Yes. If you look through the Ten Commandments, it's like there's <clears throat> ten diagnoses, and they're all terminal. And it's great that, hey, my diabetes is doing great right now, but if I'm ignoring the HIV in me, or if I'm ignoring the cancer, or if I'm ignoring, you know, my cardiac dysrhythmia issues, you know, I'm still going to die unless let the doctor work in that cardiac issue, or whatever it might be. So that's why all the commandments are so important. 
Uh, Tuesday's lesson, first paragraph, says, What would you think of someone who constantly and loudly declared that he or she was motivated yet attempted nothing? What about someone who claims to be dedicated yet never revealed uh, yet uh, never revealed to what or to whom uh, he or she is dedicated? As we have seen, love is a most powerful motivator, but to only declare our love, even our love for God, means nothing unless we act on that love. Um, as you thought about this, those who constantly and loudly declare and are motivated yet attempt nothing, did any politicians come to mind? That's what, like, <laughs> all of them? <laughs> no, but uh, I think there's a, there's a good point being made here. It goes beyond declaration, doesn't it? It goes beyond declaration. Satan has declarations, proclamations, claims. God doesn't deal with this issue with proclamation and claim. He deals with it with evidence and conduct and action. Yes? But that looks like love is an external choice rather than a condition of being. The way that love is being handled in this paragraph is it's an external thing that we're choosing to latch on and do rather than being converted and being loving. Yeah, let, let, let's, let's take that thought and jump to the last paragraph in the lesson. It says, in the last paragraph, it says, if in any loving relationship our motivation is to please the one who is the object of our love. Really? Huh. See, that might work if the one on the other side of that relationship is perfect and healthy and always does and always wants what is always right, that might work. But it might not work. It might be dangerous if the person on the other side of that relationship is, is like me or you. You see? If, if we have a person, a spouse, a child, a friend who is immature and into self-gratification, not self-improvement, then if we love them, do we do what pleases them? Can you think of another principle, like if we love them, we'll do what's in their best interest to promote their well-being, their health? See, a child, will the child, six-year-old child be pleased to have the TV turned off and sent to bed? Will the six-year-old child be pleased to have chores to do? Will they be pleased to have to brush their teeth or do their homework? If we love the child, do we do what pleases the child or we do what's best for the child? Well, many of us as adults can have same similar situations where we want something that isn't necessarily healthy. Um, when we're in a relationship with God, however, we can rightly do this because God always wants what's best. So you can, in love, do what pleases him because what pleases him will always be what's best for you. See, he's pleased to see you happy. He's pleased to see you healthy. He's pleased to see you saved. He's pleased to see you delivered. He's pleased to see you mature, to, re- to restore. So what pleases him is your health, happiness, and eternal life. And when you do what pleases him, you're actually doing what's best for you. See, a parent is pleased when a child does their homework. A parent is pleased when a child tells the truth. Isn't that right? The same way, God, it pleases God for us to live in harmony with his. Now, the bottom pink section, it asks in Tuesday's lesson, um, how can we be sure that uh, we do things for God in the right motivation? Uh, can we be a blessing to others even if we're wrongly motivated in our actions? And in closing, we're just going to throw a couple of things out here. We won't have time to really explore, but think about it. Can a doctor, a nurse, a physical therapist, a dentist, an auto mechanic, a hairstylist, a repairman do something that is a blessing to others simply because they want to make money? but it really blesses them. It heals them. It gets them well. Can a, can a, uh, a brother or sister babysit their younger, younger sibling uh, rather than going out with friends because they're ordered or commanded by their parents to do it, not because there's love in their heart to do it, but it still protects the child and is a blessing to them? Can a person out of love, say a missionary doctor, do their best with, and they're not being paid anything, do their best to help somebody give the wrong medication and have a bad outcome? Yes, you can do things with the absolute right motive and still have bad outcomes. What's the difference? If your motive is right, then your character grows like Christ, even if the outcome turns out wrong. But if your motive is wrong and selfish, even if you bless another person, you become more selfish. 
So your internal development is all dependent on your motive. How other people view you is often based on, and how other people grow and mature is based often on how things turn out. You can be misunderstood. You could do something to bless another, and they could misunderstand you as causing problems or even betrayal when there is no betrayal going on. And it gets very tricky, doesn't it? Yeah. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have sent Jesus Christ to represent you faithfully. And we know that in the life of Jesus Christ, we have perfect motive of love and we also have perfect conduct and action. Oh, we long to emulate Christ more fully, more, more consistently. We've got a lot of old neural circuits that need to be broken down and some new ones to establish, Lord, so we can have healthy habit patterns of loving you and loving others consistently so that we can shine the light of your character more fully and faithfully into this world. We pray you will bless this class, bless those who can't be here this week, uh, bless the families that are, that are missing this week, and we pray that your, your light, your love, your truth will shine forth through us and the world will be, be prepared for your soon return. We pray in your holy name. Amen.